Chapter One, Part Two, The Burial of the Guns, by Thomas Nelson Page. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Burial of the Guns by Thomas Nelson Page Chapter One, Part Two My Cousin Fanny Among her eccentricities was her absurd cowardice. She was afraid of cows, afraid of horses, afraid even of sheep. And bugs, and anything that crawled, used to give her a fit. If we drove her anywhere, and the horses cut up the least bit, she would jump out and walk, even in the mud. And I remember once seeing her cross the yard, where a young cow that had a calf asleep in the weeds, over in a corner beyond her, started toward it at a little trot with a whimper of motherly solicitude. Cousin Fanny took it into her head that the cow was coming at her, and just screamed, and sat down flat on the ground, carrying on as if she were a baby. Of course, we boys used to tease her, and tell her the cows were coming after her. You could not help teasing anybody like that. I do not see how she managed to do what she did when the enemy got to Woodside in the war. That was quite remarkable, considering what a coward she was. During 1864 the Yankees on a raid got to her house one evening in the summer. As it happened, a young soldier, one of her cousins—she had no end of cousins—had got a leave of absence, and had come there sick with fever just the day before. The house was always a sort of hospital. He was in the boys' room in bed when the Yankees arrived, and they were all around the house before she knew it. She went downstairs to meet them. They had been informed by one of the negroes that Cousin Charlie was there, and they told her that they wanted him. She told them they could not get him. They asked her, "'Why, is he not there?' I heard her tell of it once. She said, "'You know, I thought when I told them they could not get him, that they would go away. But when they asked me if he was not there, of course I could not tell them a story, so I said I declined to answer impertinent questions. You know poor Charlie was at that moment lying curled up under the bed in the boys' room with a roll of carpet a foot thick around him, and it was as hot as an oven. Well, they insisted on going through the house, and I let them go all through the lower stories, but when they started up the staircase I was ready for them. I had always kept, you know, one of Papa's old horse-pistols as a protection. Of course it was not loaded. I would not have had it loaded for anything in the world. I always kept it safely locked up, and I was dreadfully afraid of it even then. But you have no idea what a moral support it gave me, and I used to unlock the drawer every afternoon to see if it was still there all right, and then lock it again and put the key away carefully. Well, as it happened, I had just been looking at it, which I called inspecting my garrison. 
I used to feel just like Lady Margaret in Tilly Tudlam Castle. Well, I had just been looking at it that afternoon, when I heard the Yankees were coming, and by a sudden inspiration, I cannot tell from my life how I did it, I seized the pistol and hid it under my apron. I held on to it with both hands, I was so afraid of it, and all the time those wretches were going through the rooms downstairs I was quaking with terror. But when they started up the stairs I had a new feeling. I knew they were bound to get poor Charlie if he had not melted and run away. No, he would never have run away, I mean evaporated. And I suddenly ran up the stairway a few steps before them, and hauling out my big pistol, pointed it at them, and told them that if they came one step higher I would certainly pull the trigger. I could not say I would shoot, for it was not loaded. <laughs> well, do you know, they stopped. They stopped dead still. I declare I was so afraid the old pistol would go off, though of course I knew it was not loaded, that I was just quaking. But as soon as they stopped, I began to attack. I remembered my old grandmother and her scissors, and like General Jackson, I followed up my advantage. I descended the steps, brandishing my pistol with both hands, and abusing them with all my might. I was so afraid they might ask if it was loaded. But they really thought I would shoot them. You know men have not liked to be slain by a woman since the time of Abimelech. And they actually ran down the steps, with me after them, and I got them all out of the house. Then I locked the door and barred it, and ran upstairs and had such a cry over Charlie. That was like an old maid. Afterwards they were going to burn the house, but I got hold of their colonel, who was not there at first, and made him really ashamed of himself, for I told him we were nothing but a lot of poor defenceless women and a sick boy. He said he thought I was right well defended, as I had held a company at bay. He finally promised that if I would give him some music, he would not go upstairs. So I paid that for my ransom and a bitter ransom it was, too, I can tell you, singing for a Yankee. But I gave him a dose of Confederate songs, I promise you. He asked me to sing the Star-Spangled Banner, but I told him I would not do it if he burnt the house down with me in it, though it was inspired by my cousin Armistead. Then he asked me to sing Home, Sweet Home, and I did that and he actually had tears in his eyes, the hypocrite. He had very fine eyes, too. I think I did sing it well, though. I cried a little myself, thinking of the old house being so nearly burnt. There was a young doctor there, a surgeon, a really nice-looking fellow, for a Yankee. I made him feel ashamed of himself, I tell you. I told him I had no doubt he had a good mother and sister up at home, and to think of his coming and warring on poor women. And they really placed a guard over the house for me while they were there." This she actually did. With her old empty horse-pistol she cleared the house of the mob, and then vowed that if they burned the house she would burn up in it, and finally saved it by singing Home Sweet Home for the Colonel. She could not have done much better, even if she had not been an old maid.
I did not see much of her after I grew up. I moved away from the old county. Most others did the same. It had been desolated by the war and got poorer and poorer. With an old maid's usual crankiness and inability to adapt herself to the order of things, Cousin Fanny remained behind. She refused to come away, said, I believe, she had to look after the old place, Mammy and Fash, or some such nonsense. I think she had some idea that the church would go down, or that the poor people around would miss her, or something equally unpractical. Anyhow, she stayed behind, and lived for quite a while the last of her connection in the county. Of course all did the best they could for her, and had she gone to live around with her relatives, as they wished her to do, they would have borne with her and supported her. But she said no, that a single woman ought never to live in any house but her father's or her own, and we could not do anything with her. She was so proud, she would not take money as a gift from anyone, not even from her nearest relatives. Her health got rather poor. Not unnaturally, considering the way she divided her time between doctoring herself and fussing after sick people in all sorts of weather. With a fancifulness of her kind, she finally took it into her head that she must consult a doctor in New York. Of course, no one but an old maid would have done this. The home doctors were good enough for everyone else. Nothing would do, however, but she must go to New York. So, against the advice of everyone, she wrote to a cousin who was living there to meet her, and with her old wraps and cap and bags and bundles and stick and umbrella, she started. The lady met her, that is, went to meet her, but failed to find her at the station, and supposing that she had not come, or had taken some other railroad, which she was likely to do, returned home to find her in bed, with her things piled up on the floor. Some gentleman had come across her in Washington, holding the right train while she insisted on taking the wrong route, and had taken compassion on her, and not only escorted her to New York, but had taken her and all her parcels, and brought her to her destination, where she had at once retired. "'He was a most charming man, my dear,' she said to her cousin, who told me of it afterward, in narrating her eccentricities. "'And to think of it, I don't believe I had looked in a glass all day, and when I got here my cap had somehow got twisted round and was perched right over my left ear, making me look a perfect fright. He told me his name, but I have forgotten it, of course. But he was such a gentleman, and to think of his being a Yankee! I told him I hated all Yankees, and he just laughed. It did not mind my stick, nor old umbrella, nor bundles a bit. You'd have thought my old cap was a Parisian bonnet. I will not believe he was a Yankee." Well, she went to see the doctor, the most celebrated in New York, at the infirmary, of course, for she was too poor to go to his office. One consultation would have taken every cent she had. Her cousin went with her and told me of it. She said that when she came downstairs to go, she never saw such a sight. On her head she had her blue cap, 
and her green shade, and her veil, and her shawl, and she had the old umbrella and long stick, which she had brought from the country, and a large pillow under her arm, because she knew she was going to faint. So they started out, but it was a slow procession. The noise and bustle of the street dazed her, her cousin fancied, and every now and then she would clutch her companion and declare she must go back or she should faint. At every street-crossing she insisted upon having a policeman to help her over, or, in default of that, she would stop some man and ask him to escort her across, which of course he would do, thinking her crazy. Finally they reached the infirmary, where there were already a large number of patients, and many more came in afterwards. Here she shortly established an acquaintance with several strangers. She had to wait an hour or more for her turn, and then insisted that several who had come in after her should go in before her, because she said the poor things looked so tired. This would have gone on indefinitely, her cousin said, if she had not finally dragged her into the doctor's room. There the first thing that she did was to insist that she must lie down she was so faint, and her pillow was brought into requisition. The doctor humoured her, and waited on her. Her friend started to tell him about her, but the doctor said, "'I prefer to have her tell me herself.' She presently began to tell, the doctor sitting quietly by listening, and seeming to be much interested. He gave her some prescription, and told her to come again next day, and when she went, he sent for her ahead of her turn, and after that made her come to his office at his private house, instead of to the infirmary, as at first. He turned out to be the surgeon who had been at her house with the Yankees during the war. He was very kind to her. I suppose he had never seen any one like her. She used to go every day, and soon dispensed with her friend's escort, finding no difficulty in getting about. Indeed, she came to be known on the street she passed through, and on the cars she travelled by, and people guided her. Several times, as she was taking the wrong car, men stopped her and said to her, "'Madam, yours is the red car.' She said, "'Sure enough it was, but she never could divine how they knew.' She addressed the conductors as, "'My dear sir,' and made them help her not only off, but quite to the sidewalk, when she thanked them and said, "'Good-bye,' as if she had been at home. She said she did this on principle, for it was such a good thing to teach them to help a feeble woman. Next time they would expect to do it, and after a while it would become a habit. She said no one knew what terror women had of being run over and trampled on. She was as I have said, an awful coward. She used to stand still on the edge of the street and look up and down both ways ever so long, then go out in the street and stand still, look both ways, and then run back, or as like as not, start on and turn and run back after she was more than halfway across, and so get into real danger. One day, as she was passing along, a driver had in his cart an old bag of bones of a horse, which he was beating to make him pull up the hill, and Cousin Fanny, with an old maid's meddlesomeness, 
pushed out into the street and caught hold of him and made him stop, which of course collected a crowd, and just as she was coming back, a little cart came rattling along, and though she was in no earthly danger, she ran so to get out of the way of the horse that she tripped and fell down in the street and hurt herself. So much for cowardice. The doctor finally told her that she had nothing the matter with her, except something with her nerves, and, I believe, her spine, and that she wanted company. You see, she was a good deal alone. He said it was the first law of health ever laid down, that it was not good for man to be alone, that loneliness is a specific disease. He said she wanted occupation, some sort of work, to interest her, and make her forget her aches and ailments. He suggested missionary work of some kind. This was one of the worst things he could have told her, for there was no missionary work to be had where she lived. Besides, she could not have done missionary work. She had never done anything in her life. She was always wasting her time pottering about the country on her old horse, seeing sick old darkies or poor people in the pines. No matter how bad the weather was, nor how deep the roads, she would go prowling around to see some old auntie or uncle in their out-of-the-way cabins, or somebody's sick child. I have met her on old fashion in the rain, toiling along in roads that were knee-deep, to get the doctor to come to see some sick person, or to get a dose of physic from the depot. How could she have done any missionary work? I believe she repaid the doctor for his care of her by sending him a charity patient to look after, Scroggs's eldest girl, who was bedridden or something. Cousin Fanny had a fancy that she was musical. I never knew how it was arranged. I think the doctor sent the money down to have the child brought on to New York for him to see. I suppose Cousin Fanny turned beggar and asked him. I know she told him the child was the daughter of a friend of hers, a curious sort of friend Scroggs was, a drunken creature who had done everything he could to pain her. And she took a great deal of trouble to get her to the train, lending old-fashioned to haul her, which was a great deal more than lending herself. And the doctor treated her in New York for three months without any charge, till I believe the child got better. Old maids do not mind giving people trouble. She hung on at the old place as long as she could, but it had to be sold, and finally she had to leave it, though I believe, even after it was sold, she tried boarding for a while with Scroggs, the former tenant, who had bought it. He treated her so badly that finally she had to leave, and boarded around. I believe the real cause was that she caught him ploughing with old fashion. After that, I do not know exactly what she did. I heard that though the parish was vacant, she had a Sunday school at the old church, and so kept the church open, and that she used to play the wheezy old organ and teach the poor children the chants. But as they grew up, they all joined another church. They had a new organ there. I do not know just how she got on. I was surprised to hear finally that she was dead, had been dead since Christmas. It had never occurred to me that she would die. 
She had been dying so long that I had almost come to regard her as immortal, and as a necessary part of the old county and its associations. I fell in some time afterwards with a young doctor from the old county, who, I found, had attended her, and I made some inquiries about her. He told me that she died Christmas night. She came to his house on her old mare, in the rain and snow the night before, to get him to go to see someone, some friend of hers who was sick. He said she had more sick friends than any one he ever knew. He told her that he was sick himself and could not go. But she was so importunate that he promised to go next morning. She was always very worrying. He said she was wet and shivering then. She never had any idea about really protecting herself. And that she appeared to have a wretched cold. She had been riding all day, seeing about a Christmas tree for the poor children. He urged her to stop and spend the night. But she insisted that she must go on, though it was nearly dark and raining hard, and the roads would have mired a cat. She was always self-willed. Next day he went to see the sick woman, and when he arrived he found her in one bed and Cousin Fanny in another in the same room. When he had examined the patient, he turned and asked Cousin Fanny what was the matter with her. "'Oh, just a little cold, a little trouble in the chest, as Theodore Hook said,' she replied. "'But I know how to doctor myself.' Something about her voice struck him. He went over to her and looked at her, and found her suffering from acute pneumonia. He at once set to work on her. He took the other patient up in his arms and carried her into another room, where he told her that Cousin Fanny was a desperately ill woman. "'She was actually dying then, sir,' he said to me, and she died that night. When she arrived at the place the night before, which was not until after nine o'clock, she had gone to the stable herself to put up her old mare, or rather to see that she was fed. She always did that so that when she got into the house she was wet and chilled through, and she had to go to bed. She must have had on wet clothes," he said. I asked him if she knew she was going to die. He said he did not think she did, that he did not tell her, and she talked about nothing except her Christmas tree and the people she wanted to see. He heard her praying in the night, and by the way, he said, she mentioned you. She shortly became rather delirious, and wandered a good deal, talking of things that must have happened when she was young, spoke of going to see her mother somewhere. The last thing she ever said was something about fashion which, he said, showed how ingrained is vanity in the female mind. The doctor knows something of human nature. He concluded what he had to say with, she was in some respects a very remarkable woman, if she had not been an old maid. I do not suppose that she ever drew a well breath in her life. Not that I think old maids cannot be very acceptable women, he apologized. They are sometimes very useful. The doctor was a rather enlightened man. Some of her relatives got there in time for the funeral, and a good many of the poor people came and she was carried in a little old spring-wagon, drawn by fashion, through the snow. 
to the old home-place where Scroggs very kindly let them dig the grave, and was buried there in the old graveyard in the garden, in a vacant space just beside her mother, with the children around her. I really miss her a great deal. The other boys say they do the same. I suppose it is the trouble she used to give us. The old set are all doing well. Doug is a professor. He says the word spinster gave him a twist to philology. Old Blinky is in Paris. He had a picture in the Salon last year, an autumn landscape, called Le Côte du Bois. I believe the translation of that is The Woodside. His colouring is said to be nature itself. To think of old Blinky being a great artist! Little Kitty is now a big girl, and is doing finely at school. I have told her she must not be an old maid. Joe is a preacher with a church in the purlieus of a large city. I was there not long ago. He had a choral service. The Gregorian music carried me back to old times. He preached on the text, I was sick, and ye visited me. It was such a fine sermon, and he had such a large congregation, that I asked why he did not go to a finer church. He said he was carrying soup to Mrs. Ronquist. By the way, his organist was a splendid musician. She introduced herself to me. It was Scroggs's daughter. She is married, and can walk as well as I can. She had a little girl with her that I think she called Fanny. I do not think that was Mrs. Scroggs's name. Frank is now a doctor, or rather a surgeon, in the same city with Joe, and becoming very distinguished. The other day he performed a great operation, saving a woman's life, which was in all the papers. He said to an interviewer that he became a surgeon from dressing a sore on an old mare's back. I wonder what he was talking about. He is about to start a woman's hospital for poor women. Cousin Fanny would have been glad of that. She was always proud of Frank. She would as likely as not have quoted that verse from Tennyson's song about the echoes. She sleeps now under the myrtle at Scroggs's. I have often thought of what that doctor said about her, that she would have been a very remarkable woman if she had not been an old maid, I mean, a spinster. End of chapter.